I'll ask you this morning, please, if you will, to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. The title I've given to this subject this morning is Jesus Will Do It. Okay, what does that mean? We'll see. We know and we talk about understanding that Jesus asked us to do things. And our first response a lot of times is not like Philip's was, but we say, I can't do that. And you know in Acts, when the angel told Philip to get up and go down on the road in the desert, and the next sentence says, he got up and went. Jesus didn't tell him where he was going, didn't tell him why he was going. But after walking about 45 miles, as I can calculate it, he saw a man in a chariot. And Jesus told him to go up to that man in the chariot and talk to him. And he did, and he explained the scriptures to him. At that time, all they had was an Old Testament. That's something we've got to remember, especially for folks that hadn't been here and listened to some of this stuff that I've been talking. Uh, when they say in chapter 3 and verse 16 of 1 Timothy that the word is true and that it all came from the same place and whatever, and it can be believed, they're not talking about the New Testament there because the New Testament didn't even exist. They're talking about the Old Testament because it was already in existence. The New Testament, the letters and all that were put together to form the New Testament didn't all come together in a group until about A.D. 90, about 60, 55 or 60 years after Jesus was resurrected. So they didn't have that at the time that they're, the people are talking in the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament. But Hebrews has a taste of the Old Testament. It's written about the Jews, the Jews' perspective. Uh, there's been some concern about who might have written it. Some say it's Paul, but others say it doesn't write like Paul. I think myself it was Apollos. He worked with Paul, and I think he's the one that wrote Hebrews. But at any rate, with a little bit of difficulty, you can get into Hebrews and learn a lot of things about Jesus Christ from the Hebrew perspective. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20. Excuse me, verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. He's saying here, and this is one of the things that I have put forth as something that's important for me, but it started out by saying that we have a high priest. We have, a, and a high priest's job in the Old Testament was this. They represented the people to God, and they represented God to the people. They told the people about God, and they were constantly praying to God about the people that they knew. So they were the intermediary. So we have a high priest now in the church who is Jesus Christ. And he looks out for us, and he makes sure we learn about God. So he says, let us draw near with a true heart to Jesus in full assurance of faith, now let me tell you something I've learned about that. It tells us to draw near. The problem here is not Jesus. Jesus is from the time we were born again. He is pulling us. He's drawing us closer to him all the time. So what that really means here is this. It's a given that Jesus is going to draw you as a Christian closer and closer to him every day. But what his meaning is, is this. You have to co cooperate. Jesus is pulling me closer to him and teaching me stuff and causing me to be more like him every day. But I've got to allow him to do that. If I won't allow him to do it, it won't be done. And I can't fight what he's trying to do to make me more like him and have it happen. So really, it's like that that commandment that says, be ye holy, God says, as I am holy. Well, I've learned I can't be holy. There's nothing I can do that will make me holier than I am. But I can allow God to make me holy because that's where it comes from. I have no will from which I can draw holiness without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's no way I can. It's not here. Jeremiah says it. It is not within the heart of a man that walketh to design his own path. So spiritually speaking, I can't understand Scripture on my own. If I don't ask God to forgive me for my sins and put me back in, 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 in good terms with Him, and then to ask Him to fill me with His Spirit, which is a prayer He says He never doesn't answer, then I won't understand everything I'm supposed to understand. But if I ask those two things, then Jesus is in a place to where he can direct the Holy Spirit to direct us in everything we do. With a true heart, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled Cleansed from an evil conscience, 
He takes our conscience away from us. How do we get a conscience? Have you ever thought about it? Because some of what we do is because our conscience bugs us. Well, when we get to be a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit takes over our conscience and speaks through our conscience. But up until that time, our conscience has been directed to us by whoever happens to be raising us. Our parents create a conscience as a child. I better not ever catch you doing that. You've probably heard that. That is forever. Ooh, mama told me when I was three, I better not ever do this. So that's our conscience reminding us what we need to be participating in and what we don't. But you see, we might have a conscience that we, that as we become saved, that whoever had control of directing our conscience put in some stuff in there that Jesus doesn't approve of. So when we get to be saved, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, starts working on the bad parts of our conscience. That's what he says here, an evil conscience. And to clean our bodies with pure water, we get to be, last week we had scripture, where it says anybody that has this hope of heaven tries to keep himself pure. That's what he's talking about here. We keep our lives cleaned up. That conscience is defined as to be able to see completely. If our conscience sees a situation complete, then Jesus can direct us how to deal with that situation. There's a scripture I found two weeks ago, and I've never seen it before, but Paul and Silas were telling some of the the people they were preaching to, you guys have put all kind of restrictions on yourself. In other words, you've got rules. Now look, folks, churches have a tendency, not churches, well, yeah, churches do too, because a church without a preacher still put rules on it. And preachers preach rules to us. And we can't get along with God if we don't follow those rules. And so many of those rules I found are not in Scripture. So we've got to be careful what we consider as God's things that He's particular about in our lives and not the church we happen to be attending. They want you to dress this way. They want you to speak this way. And like we showed you to start with, old Cahaba Valley, you couldn't drink a beer in public. You couldn't say one curse word in public. Or next Wednesday night at business meeting, they kicked you out of the church. That's not the way that God intends for a church to be. But Paul and Silas told those people, you're not getting your restrictions from us. We're not saying that you've got a set of rules you've got to live by. Because whom the Lord has set free, you're free indeed. Now you're not free to do evil, but you're free to do what God wants you to do. But still, that's freedom. You have freedom to choose whether you accept what Jesus wants or not. So the thing I've had a pretty good bit 
of work with is trying to convince born-again believers they're free. And you have a freedom. And so many of us, because of our early church bringing up or whatever, we've got something back there that we think we have to do. God wants you to be. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Because when you think like him, you'll do like him. But some people try to do like him without thinking like him, and before you know it, they've, they've, they've fallen, and then somebody calls them a hypocrite. But if you can, like 12th chapter of Romans says, if you renew your spirit, if you change your mind every day, you'll be getting more and more and have your mind open to what you might learn that Jesus wants you to do and be. I think sometimes the churches get too bad about picking at folks and what they might have seen them do or what they thought they did. They try to discern people's motivation. Oh, he did that because he thought this. You see, I don't know what you're thinking. I can see what you do, but I don't know what thought provoked that. So I need to leave you alone about stuff like that. It says in the 14th chapter of Romans that if I belong to God through Jesus Christ, he is my master. And a servant's servant needs to be obedient to his master, not what you think he ought to do. And when we understand that, we're not too quick to point out other people's failures because we don't know what God might have called them to do. It might look like it's bad to us, but it might not be bad at all to God. So we leave people being obedient up to God because he's the only one that knows what their motivations are. In verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. God is faithful that promised to do whatever he's telling us to do. You do this and I'll do that. You don't have to worry about him. He'll do it every time. We're the ones that have got the problem. But the thing is, I learned a long, long time ago to look for promises in God's Scripture because I found out that if I can make myself do what He called me to do, then His promise will be there. I will live a blessed life. I put before you a curse and a blessing. He choose you this day whom you'll serve. You can either choose Satan or you can choose God. And your life, your everyday life and the blessings you get, the ease in your life, the distractions in your life, the troubles in your life, the sickness even, has a tendency to back away because the Holy Spirit is trying to keep you protected from all of those things. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24, you don't have to turn there. It says, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Jesus will do what he called you 
for. Now, there's a place over in the, the New Testament, over in the Timothys, I think, that says don't let your heart condemn you. You feel like that God has called you to teach a class or to go talk to an old, older lady maybe or any lady, anybody that lives by themselves, doesn't have a lot of company, and you feel like you need to go and to visit with them and give them a word. It says here we're to exhort or encourage one another. So you go and visit them and your heart says, oh, you can't do that. You know you're not smart enough to do something like that. And it, you can actually talk yourself out of doing something that God called you to do. Well, the title was Jesus Will Do It. Please understand something. We have people in this church and in every place I've ever been that jump up and do things that God called them to do and they really weren't sure they could do it when they jumped up and did it. We've got a piano player like that. <laughs> what a blessing she's been. She never played for a church before. She went to the piano and started playing. And in a few days, it got to be good. That's God. If she'd have said, oh, I can't do that, I've never, never worked that hard on the piano, she wouldn't come to the piano and sit down and put her fingers on the keys and let God take those fingers and make good sounds come out of them. You see what I'm saying? God said, go, and Philip got up and went. Just that quick. That's the things I'm talking about. When you feel that God has called you to do something, you're not to concern yourself with whether you're capable of doing it or not. You can. He knew you could before he called you. He's not going to call somebody to do things that he knows is incapable of doing it with his help. But with his help, you can do anything. You remember that guy in the fire with somebody was talking about that went in his house and picked up a refrigerator and went running in the front yard with it and set it down in the front yard. That guy couldn't have picked that refrigerator up by himself. There was no way. But he did it while his house was on fire. You see my point I'm trying to make? And that's just a, things that happen to us every day. That's what he's talking about here. So get up and go. Like Philip did. Get up and go. Start toward wherever he called you to go, and he'll get you there and get you through it. In Philippians, turn there if you will, please, a few pages back to your left. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, told them, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? I don't know whether you understand it like my Bible teaches it, but when you were born again, when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believed it and you accepted it, God came after you and showed you that. He was already after you. P 
people who God has not after do not come out of the wilderness hunting God. We don't do it. The only way we'll hunt God is for the Holy Spirit to tell us you better find God and then we'll go to hunt. So you see, it says here, being confident of this very thing, Paul said, that he which hath begun a good work in you, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has called you to be a child of God. He started it, and it says, we'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started in your life to make you a Christian and for you to do those good works that it says that you were created to do. He has to see to it that you can do everything he called you to do. And he will do that in your life if you will respond until you're face to face with Jesus. You don't have to do one thing. And it'll go so easy you wouldn't believe it. I've been so scared sometimes of even witnessing somebody who was absolutely so mean you couldn't believe. And I didn't know him that well. And God said, go tell him about me. I said, Lord, I don't know that man. What if I start talking? I mean, he's an ex-con. And look at him, how bad he is. If I say something to him, he's liable to knock my block off. I've never had anybody do that. The meanest folks I've ever mentioned to Jesus to never did that. They were always very, very polite with me. And my fears were not there. Now, one thing I learned, I don't approach people that Jesus hadn't directed me to approach. If he's not messing with them, I'm sure not going to mess with them because that's where you can get hurt. But when Jesus tells me to say something to somebody, I know that he's already fixed them to where they'll listen. Maybe they accept, maybe they don't. Because you see, the people in Acts accepted the message of Jesus Christ three ways. One, I like that. I want to be that. Number two, that sounds pretty good. I'll think about it and get back to you. And number three, the third way that people accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, let's get some rocks and stone him with stones until he dies. That is the three responses that you can find evidenced in the book of Acts. And anybody you speak to may come that way. Why God would ask you to speak to somebody that would give that response, I don't know. But he has a reason if he does. But in my experience, I haven't had that. So we get back to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. I should have told you to keep your thumb there, but I didn't. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised it. Jesus will keep his promises to us so we can tell somebody else what those promises are and we'll never be a liar. It says, Hold fast to our profession of faith. What is that? Our profession of faith is a profession of hope. What do you hope for? What is this whole thing about Jesus Christ with you? How do you feel about that? Are you hoping to be in heaven one day? 
Most everybody I know, if you ask them, they say yes. Well, what is your goal then? About the most complete goal you could have would be to do what Jesus says while I'm down here and wind up in heaven. That's all of it. But because we make so many of our own choices, like Isaiah says, sometimes God turns his face away from us because we're down here sinning and he can't look at us if we're doing that. So share your goals with other people. It's just as simple as well. I mean, why would they ask you, why would you do this? Why, why are you like that now? I mean, I've been knowing you for a long time. You've never been like that. Why are you like that now? Because I want to go to heaven. Is that your goal? Tell people that. Don't be shy about it. See how they respond. It says in 1024, and let us consider one another. What is he talking about one another? He's talking about other Christians. He's talking about us. Back in 1 John in the back next to Revelation, John is constantly talking about us and them and we and they. He makes a, a direct definitive between us and them. Are we supposed to love them? I'm not saying that's not so. But we're supposed to know that we're Christians. And at this point, they don't give us any evidence that they are. So that's the them and the they. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good work. So what do we do with each other here? What do we do with other Christians we know, maybe go to other churches that are in our place of business or wherever we work or we come in contact with, that we know what, what, is our, what is our commandment from God to do to them? To urge them to do good things, to be obedient to Christ and to do good works. And he tells you what the good works are. A lot of people go to church on a regular basis, do not understand what dead works is. It talks about it here in, 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 in Hebrews. Dead work is a work that God did not tell you to do. Maybe you think he did. Maybe you think it will impress him if you do it, but he never told you to do it. The works is what we get reward for. We get salvation free, but the rewards that we get from our life down here as Christians are those things that we will dump at Jesus' feet when we get to heaven, and that will be our status in heaven is how many rewards we receive that we can give to him when we get up there. Because you see, he deserves it. He's the one that made us all do it anyhow. Gave us the ability to do it and called us to do it. So we're to encourage each other to stir it up, the word says in the Greek, to stir up this idea in each other that we need to do good works and we need to love each other. We can constantly remind each other of that. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we encourage each other. But now how do we get to see each other if we live back in the woods and don't 
ever come to town. That right there is what so many denominations and so many preachers have rested their sermons on about us being in church every single time the door is open. God does never say that. And I have learned in my own experience to be very wary of trying to say that someone might be a really special Christian because they go to church every Sunday. In the last several years, last 30 years, 40 years, I've been in churches where there were people there that weren't even Christians. And they, when you get them out away from people where they're not trying to make a show for, they act like what they are, not Christian. Jesus is not there. So that's the reason I have to be careful about calling people who go to church every time the door opens as spiritual people because some of them are not. And some of them are putting on a show. They tell me that insurance salesmen, when they go to school, will learn to sell insurance. That's the first thing they tell them when you move to a new territory, you join some church because you can sell a lot of insurance in the church. There are people going to church for all kinds of reasons, folks. But what it says here is not go every time the door is open. That's not what it says. That's not what it means. It says don't quit going. That's what it says. So that's the reason I say. Somebody says, well, I, I wasn't at church Sunday morning. I had to stop and fix a flat, and by the time I got the, the fellow's flat fixed, well, church, it was time for church to be over. Praise God for you. That's where you're supposed to be. If God moved you to stop and help change that fellow's tire, that's where you ought to be. And that's the reason I tell people, you don't drive by needs so you can be present at church. That's not what God never intended. The Good Samaritan took a lot of time with that guy on the side of the road. I don't know what he was supposed to do or whatever, but he was letting something else go to help that man. And if you got to let church go to help somebody, then I'd suggest doing it. I've talked with people over and over. They're making me work Sundays for the next two or three Sundays, and I can't be at church. Praise God. What day do you have off? Monday, we'll go sit down in front of the TV, run up one of those TV preachers, and have you a good sermon. That's what I'm saying. It's about you getting in, because God says that a spiritual person is a person who knows and understands me. And the more you can know and understand God, and you can do that all kinds of ways, it don't have to be in church. And Satan has absolutely brought so many of his folks into churches. And he, he comes to church, whether you know that or not. And so many people today, standing right where I'm standing, are pre preaching for Satan without their people knowing. So what I'm trying to say is your job and my job to try every spirit. If I cut a preacher on on TV and I hear him say something out of whack, He's, I'm fixing to go to another channel. I'm not going to listen to it. And I don't turn him back on. And there's some of those like that too. So it says in verse 25, don't quit getting together. You can't help each other if you don't get together. The thing that we see around here with this group right here is the fellowship 
is, I mean, I could sometimes before we start meeting, I can hear all of you, and you're talking 90 miles an hour. That's fellowshipping. That's encouraging each other, getting to know each other. In verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Let me say this. A lot of people don't know. They've studied the Old Testament. They've sat behind sermon after sermon after sermon. They've been preached to about sacrifices and everything and don't know that there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament, which is the only way you could get your sins forgiven in the Old Testament was to give God a sacrifice. There was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for premeditated, chosen sin. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) Well, you can't give them a lamb or a dove for that. He won't accept it. The sacrifices were for sins that you committed that you didn't know that you committed when you committed them. You didn't know any better. For if we sin willfully, after that we have after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, that salvation, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Two other scriptures I'd like to read to you that covers that too. And you can either turn there or you can just listen. In Judges, I mean in Numbers, chapter 15 and verse 30. It says, but the soul that doeth all, does anything, the person, the human, that does anything presumptuously. Now that word is not used like we use it. We use it like we're assuming because we act, we act because we were assuming. That's not the word that they define in the Old Testament. The word in the Old Testament has a connotation of bad with it. We knew it could be wrong, and we did it anyhow. It has arrogance hooked to it. But the soul that doeth all, anything, presumptuously, whether it, he be born in the land, in other words, a Jew or an Israelite, and hath broken his com- whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Now that was in Canaan. That's the promised land. So he says, God says, that if you are one of my people that lives in my land, Canaan, the promised land, and you choose arrogantly to sin, then I can't have anything to do with you. It doesn't matter whether you're traveling through, you're in my land, and it approaches me if you do it in my land, or one of the people that belong to me that live in this land. 
That's the Old Testament version. Now the New Testament version is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. It's talking about the people who lead other people astray. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage. Have you seen these preachers, big time preachers? I won't call their names, you know what I'm talking about. They're being caught on TV all the time in a place where the mic's on and they didn't know it or a camera's on and they didn't realize it and they're doing something that they just told everybody they shouldn't do. That's the kind of people he's talking about. For if after, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. They do bad stuff. But they're telling us that, hey, their sermons are good. They tell us that we're going to have everything good. They themselves are the servants of corruption. They do bad stuff. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought to bondage. So we talk about being tempted by Satan to do the evil thing, and then it gets us, and we're in bondage to it. We can't get out of it. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now hear that. You know the bad stuff's going on out there. You're a Christian today. You have accepted the salvation of Jesus and you see things in a completely different light. But you're still aware of people who are doing things you know they're not supposed to do. You know right from wrong. The Holy Spirit teaches you that. They are again entangled therein so they get involved in sin and they get tangled up in it and overcome. They fall flat on their face because they dabbled a little bit in sin and it reached out and grabbed them, tripped them up, threw them down on their face and they're overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. The definition is turn back. To turn back. It's like I said before. When God calls you to do something, he sees it's done. He sees you can do it. He gives you the power to do it. That guy couldn't have towed the refrigerator out of his burning house. He didn't have the strength to. So God gave it to him. On a normal day, he couldn't have picked it up. But they said he hugged that thing carried out in the front yard. I talked to people that saw him do it. God gave them that. But here's the thing. After we've tasted it, what God is, after we've tasted the Holy Spirit and salvation, and seeing how God can make us be obedient to him and our life all of a sudden gets to be a better life, why would we choose to go back? That's what he's saying. Because it's been explained a lot of times. I've heard several sermons on it that 
Sin is for a season. It doesn't last long. What we do doesn't last long. But the results of it can last the rest of our lives. And that's what we need to avoid. So God is faithful that he'll promise to you what he says he'll do for you if you will step out and let him guide you to do those things he wants done. That's the only way he can get glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for explaining to us how you think and what you consider to be good and bad and how you deal with us and our shortcomings. Lord, give us the courage and your mercy too and your grace that we might do the things that you've called us to do that your Father and our Heavenly Father might be glorified because we do what we do. So Lord, keep us working. Show us things to do. Encourage us to do them. Give us the means to get it done. And then, Lord, make us very careful to give you the praise for all of it because without you, we couldn't do any of it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.